gentlemen, now is the winter of our new content made glorious summer by Shakespeare's first true masterpiece, Richard III. Welcome to Bardflies, a not at all over serious podcast about tyranny, regret, domination, and the makings of a great villain. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. And this is Bardflies, episode seven, A Kingdom for a Hearse. But I that am not shaped for sportive tricks, nor made to court an amorous looking glass. I that am rudely stamped, deformed, unfinished. Since before my time into this breathing world, scarce half mad up. And that so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt my relief. Why, in this weak piping time of peace, I've no delight to pass away the time. Unless to spy my shadow and the sun and descant on my own deformed term. <laughs> and therefore, since I cannot prove a lover, I'm determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days. Will, we finally made it to the end of Shakespeare's Wars of the Roses tetralogy. How are you feeling? James, I'm, uh, I'm feeling relieved, pleased, uh, accomplished, and like I need to take a shower to wash all that blood off after reading Richard III and Titus Andronicus back to back. I think that seems completely fair. Can you do us all the honors and give us a plot summary so the audience knows how this saga finally resolves? Absolutely. The play opens in the wake of the War of the Roses, in which the House of York triumphed over the House of Lancaster, which was led by Henry VI and his wife, Margaret of Anjou. Richard, the Duke of Gloucester and later King of England, is the central character of this play. He played a major role in the Yorkist victory and personally killed Henry VI when he was imprisoned in the Tower of London at the end of uh, Henry VI Part Three, and has long believed that he should ascend to the throne. Yet his eldest brother, Edward IV, is the one who has risen to power. Richard immediately starts scheming to ensure his rise by clearing the entire line of succession. He first sows internal dissension in his family by planting the idea to Edward, who has fallen ill, that their other brother, Clarence, is conspiring against him. Clarence gets sent to the tower, oblivious of Richard's role in his imprisonment, and then Richard sends a pair of thugs to murder him, one of whom stabs Clarence and then drowns him in a barrel of wine. He also begins to woo the Lady Anne Neville, who is escorting Henry VI's body to burial. Anne hates Richard because the Yorkists killed her father, uh, Warwick, and her husband, but Richard persuades her to let bygones be bygones, and she decides to marry him when he demonstrates how sorry he is. He isn't. Richard then tells Edward that Clarence has been killed and suggests that Edward's wife, Queen Elizabeth, was behind the murder. The shock kills Edward, and his son, Edward V, is poised to ascend to the throne with Richard as Lord Protector. Richard arrests three of the Queen's relatives and has them executed, but also becomes concerned that Edward V and his younger brother could be a threat to his ascent. Richard then starts a whisper campaign that the two princes are illegitimate because their father was illegitimate, and that he should be king in their place. A lord who objects gets charged with treason and executed. Richard asks one of his allies, Buckingham, to kill the princes who have been imprisoned. And uh, when Buckingham balks, Richard gets another man to do the deed and doesn't give Buckingham some land that he had been promised. 
Buckingham defects and sides with the exiled Henry, Earl of Richmond, who last time we saw him at the end of Henry VI, Part Three, is prophesied to take control and take the throne of England from Richard. In the meantime, Richard takes care of some more loose ends, namely by basically poisoning Lady Anne so he can marry Edward IV's daughter, who is next in the line of succession. Eventually, a bunch of nobles get together to mourn the two young princes, and the former queens Elizabeth and Margaret, and Richard's own mother curse him out. A friendless Richard then faces uprisings, led first by Buckingham and the Welshmen, and then by Richmond. He captures and kills Buckingham and prepares for a final battle with Richmond at Bosworth Field, but not before being visited by the ghosts of all of his victims. In the battle, Richard's army more or less deserts him. He gets knocked off his horse. and is then killed by Richmond, who becomes Henry VII and marries Edward IV's daughter. So before we dive into our discussion topics, I thought we should do just a quick a quick summary of where, uh, where Shakespeare departs from the historical record, because I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Richard III is probably the most famous villain in all of the Shakespearean canon. And in fact, in history, history is much more ambiguous, <laughs> to, to say the least. And it's important for us to remember that Shakespeare was writing in the time of Elizabeth, who is the granddaughter of Henry VII, who is, of course, the Earl of Richmond, who becomes king at the end of the play. So this is definitely a little bit of pro-Tudor propaganda. Mm -hmm. But just to note a couple areas where Shakespeare either completely departs from or more accurately elaborates on the historical record. You know, Richard in the play famously is a hunchback. And it talks a lot about his physical deformities. This is only semi-historical. Richard apparently had scoliosis and had sort of a slight one, you know, one shoulder was slightly higher than the other, but he was not the monstrous hunchback that he's described as by Shakespeare. Richard also was not responsible for the deaths of either Henry VI, who he kills at the end of Henry VI Part Three, or of his brother Clarence. Clarence was executed on the order of Edward IV. As sort of he is here, but Shakespeare has taken great liberties with with how that actually happened. And last, and perhaps most importantly, Richard's greatest villainy, I think, that people know about is is the supposed murder of the two children of Edward IV in the Tower of London. We don't actually know how the princes died, or even if they were, in fact, murdered in the tower. The, they were seen playing in the grounds of the tower in the summer of 1483 and then disappeared and were never seen again. It is possible that Richard had them killed, but we don't know that for sure. In 1674, the bones of two small bodies were discovered underneath a staircase in the tower uh, and were assumed to be the princes, and Charles II had those bones reinterred at Westminster Abbey. But it has not been verified that those are, in fact, the bodies of, uh, of the two princes. So Plenty of room for conspiracy theorizing and, and trutherism, certainly. And there are actually some pretty hardcore partisans that still exist. I think there are two separate societies in the UK that are dedicated to defending Richard's honor. So just do with that what you will. So, Will, before we dive in here... Or rather, I should say, as an, as, as an entree to our discussion, you know, usually we sort of talk about our feelings about the play at the very end. But with this one, I kind of wanted to talk about it straight up at the beginning. And the reason I wanted to do that was I, I found this play much more difficult to get through than 
I think any of the other ones that we've read up till now, the language to me felt more elaborate, a little bit harder to track. There's a lot of characters. It's very long. So mm. as I was reading it, I kind of felt like I wasn't enjoying the process of reading it in the way that maybe I enjoyed reading Henry VI Part Two, for instance. But then as I was going through and prepping the outline and going back over my notes, I realized there's really a lot in this play, and I think a lot more in this play intellectually and thematically than we have in any of the other plays. So did you find that to be the case, or did you? what, what was your reaction, and did you share that feeling about it? Yeah, I don't know if I felt that it was so much more difficult to get through, per se, but I would mm-hmm. say that it is a order of magnitude more complex than the previous plays that we've read. Like, the analogy that springs to mind is if, like, I don't know, Two Gentlemen in Verona is, like, Scorsese's Boxcar Bertha, and then Henry VI Part Two is Mean Streets. This is, like, The Taxi Driver. Like, it's right. just, a, it's just a, a leap beyond in quality and complexity for the artist. And so, and, and he's playing around with stuff that he hasn't really done before. Like famously, Richard breaking the fourth wall, pulling the audience in as part of his conspiracy. There's, there's a lot that's going on both in the characterization of Richard that's more complex than I think anything that mm-hmm. we've seen heretofore in the plays that we've read. And it's the language, also, yeah. It's also much darker, right? Which is interesting because it's not like the, the previous... I mean, obviously, you know, we did Titus last time. That's certainly not a walk in the park. And there's a lot of brutality and cruelty in the other Henry VI plays. But this one felt to me an order of magnitude more unsavory in its portrayal of human nature. Did, did you find that to be the case as well? Yeah, I think absolutely. that's just hard to experience as a reader, right? It's it's not pleasant. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, Titus is a cartoon. Like, it's un, it's an unpleasant read in a lot of respects, but it's a cartoon. This is, you really feel the anguish of a lot of the characters in here. And you see a lot of people just get set up and take some pretty brutal falls as a result of it. And you get a sense, I mean, and we'll, we'll reflect on this, you know, throughout the conversation, I'm sure. But there's a, the theme of anguish, regret, psychological pain, that's like very much foregrounded in this one as all of Richard's plots come about, including, you know, even when he basically kind of undoes himself through all of his schemes and stratagems when he comes undone in the final battle where he's more or less left alone. So there's there's a lot more like pathos, I think, in a very direct way mm-hmm. in this in this play. And the language is a lot more complicated, which isn't to say that it's not funny at times, because there's a lot of wordplay, and Richard is the primary driver of that, only to be seconded by the two princes, actually. It's, <laughs> it's interesting, because there's there's a lot of high, I don't know if high is quite the right word, but there's a lot of comedy in Richard, even though he's joking or making light of things that are extremely serious, right? He's joking about killing people or about how he's a villain. It's kind of an interesting contrast. And I wonder, I hadn't thought about this before, Will, but I wonder if that's part of the appeal of the character that he's, you know, as he breaks norms throughout the play and in his approach to his pursuit of power, he is also irreverent and, you know, it's it's black humor of a type that's not comfortable, but maybe was more funny because of that. Yeah, I think think that's right. I mean, almost from the beginning... And we've talked about this with the with the prior plays in the tetralogy. Richard leaps off the page 
in a way that very few other characters do in the previous plays that we've read. And I think part of that, you know, one, it's because of the intimacy of him breaking the fourth wall so often with the audience. But I also think it's because he has this very self-consciously villainous turn, but it's not always cartoonish. Like he is Mm -hmm. capable of modulating and evoking great pathos and almost maybe not sympathy, but you sort of feel for the guy at various points. I know that you could take his deformity as like a commentary on his character, but I think, and maybe this is more of a modern reading, but you could also read it as he's he's rudely stamped, right? In his own words, in the in the famous opening soliloquy. You know, he's he's kind of this figure that's piteous in a way, but he's also tremendously talented in his schemes and his pursuit of power. And I think that's an interesting quality to imbue your central character with and to make basically the the central character a villain or an anti-hero mm-hmm. instead of... That's interesting. I, I want to I come back to this idea of his talent. We'll come back to that, I think, when we talk more about the overall arc of, of him in these four mm. plays, because I think it's very relevant to that discussion. For now, Will, let's talk about his ultimate downfall, right? Mm. So Richard, because Richard secures power in this play pretty effectively. And I mean, it seems like he's, even though he doesn't become king until Act 4, it seems like he's effectively in control much earlier than that. Mm. But it all falls apart pretty quickly in the last two acts. What do you think is the cause or are the constituent causes of Richard's ultimate downfall like why does he ultimately fail and i have some thoughts but i want to hear what what you have to say about this first so strictly thinking through the instrumentality of the plot and what actually happens and we can go into like the the reasons behind his character for why this happens but he's very good at getting people out of the way he's not so good at building the coalition that he needs to rule the realm effectively, right? So he's very good at getting everybody that needs to be killed, he gets killed. You know, it's it's uh, like single-minded and he's able to disguise his hand where he needs to in order to push his, his plots and schemes along. But like the Buckingham thing is a great example of this. So he imprisons the princes and then he asks Buckingham to do away with them essentially. And when Buckingham balks, he decides that he's not going to follow through on the pledge that he had made to Buckingham to give him an earldom, and that causes Buckingham to defect. I think that's a great example of needlessly alienating somebody in the process of trying to consolidate your rule, and Richard kind of takes it, yeah. This is one of the most inexplicable, or, or not inexplicable, but one of the most obvious unforced errors. Because it's not like Buckingham is asked to kill the princes and then says, uh, like, oh no, like, this is a bridge too far. Although he obviously feels that it is a bridge too far. But his reaction to that isn't immediately to abandon Richard. His right. reaction is to then, it's almost like he's sort of sounding Richard out about seeing if he's going to stay true to his promises, right, of, of get, giving their oldum in Fairford. But he, it's clear that he can be bought, <laughs> right? Right, And right. Richard, for reasons that are, I, which, I mean, I think they're reasons that are consistent with his character throughout the play, but are not really rational in a, in a strategic sense. It just it blows him off and, and isn't interested in engaging him with it and, and is too busy thinking about how he's going to affect murdering the princes to worry about the fact that his most important supporter is now on the verge of 
rebellion. Yeah, I mean, I think all of this is of a piece with Richard's character. So he's always been a bit megalomaniacal, and that's been true throughout the tetralogy, throughout the the Henry the Sixth plays. But I think over the course of this one, you really see him become so single-minded that he is no longer really paying attention to the actual politics per se, other than him getting to the throne. And he becomes increasingly paranoid, right, as he attains power and, you know, his enemies start proliferating. And I think some of that is his inability to keep friends when he has them and to recognize that getting the throne is not enough. Power Mm -hmm. is not necessarily enough. You know, it has to be power uh, or a source of power. You know, it's not just the throne. And it's not just eliminating your internal rivals. It's building an enduring coalition of people that you can trust. Uh, And he does not do trust particularly well in this play. And I think all of that's of a piece with him eventually ending up alone. Yeah, I think think this goes to, you know, what what you're saying about him not doing trust. It it feels to me like it is a failure to recognize that I, I, I think one of the things that's most remarkable about Richard as a character, particularly given where we are in the Shakespeare canon, which is like this, I think, is the first significant play, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's clear, you know, the reason that I think at, at its bottom that it is the first significant play is because Richard is the first character we've found in Shakespeare who has a clear and coherent worldview, right? He's not just saying things for proximate motives or whatever, right? He has... right. He has a, a, a conception of how the world works, and it's extremely transactional. Uh, the, the, the passage that I marked that really, where this really came home to me was that passage towards the end where he's talking to Queen Elizabeth, i.e. the wife of his brother, Edward IV, who's now dead, and he's trying to get her to woo for him her daughter, who he wants to marry, <laughs> basically, to shore up his, his claim to the throne, which, uh, yes, I mean, that's a whole other... <laughs> <laughs> a whole other crazy set of circumstances but yeah so in this speech he says you know look what is done cannot now be amended men shall deal unadvisedly sometimes which after hours gives leisure to repent if i did take the kingdom from your sons to make amends i'll give it to your daughter if i have killed the issue of your womb to quicken your increase i will beget mine issue of your blood upon your daughter a grandam's dame is, l- is little less in love than is the doting title of a mother uh, and go, goes on, <laughs> your children were a vexation to your youth, but mine shall be a comfort to your age. The loss you have is but a son being king, and by that loss, your daughter is made queen, right? He's, he, he has this approach to things, which is that the immediate advantage that he's offering is going to make good all the wrong that he's done and doesn't acknowledge or take into account that there are other considerations, which are all the bad shit he's done previously. Mm. Yeah, um, And I yeah. feel like he... You know, it would be one thing if he had this worldview and recognized that other people don't have it, which he kind of does, I think, in his ability to make other people behave the way he wants, right? He's like, he's obviously good at manipulating other people. But fundamentally, he he assumes that everyone is motivated by the same transactional point of view that he is. Well, I, it, it's an interesting point because, oddly, in the previous plays, I think... Richard is only the, if there's a sort of spectrum of behavior here, Richard is obviously the outlier and taking this Machiavellian worldview to the extreme, but he's not necessarily wrong in that we've seen plenty of ignominious and sort of selfish or megalomaniacal tendencies in lots of other characters throughout. 
But this play is about how far of an outlier Richard is when it's completely left unchecked by anybody else. And his insincerity and ability to disguise his motives from other people is like a world beyond all of his other relatives that have also been pretty ruthless in the accrual of power. Just to go back, something you said reminded me of even the the scene where he's wooing Lady Anne, Mm -hmm. who's accompanying Henry VI's body. It's amazing to me how he basically wins her over by professing to be sorry for the things that he's done. And of course, we all know that Richard is not sincere at all about almost anything he says to people, perhaps other than the audience, about his ambitions. You know, the audience are the one, we're the co-conspirators or, or whatever. Yeah. Like, he, we're the one, the one group of people with which he's sharing his agenda unfiltered. But it's amazing to me how he will engage with people and he somehow is able to persuade them even though it just seems patently unconvincing to us. That's kind of an amazing thing. I guess all of which is to say, he reminds me, to to use sort of a Game of Thrones analogy, he reminds me of Cersei Lannister becoming imprisoned by her own plots and stratagems Mm -hmm. and sort of like, yeah, you've, you've attained and consolidated your power to a degree, but you have these massive vulnerabilities, particularly external to the realm. And I think this is like... This is part of the problem of, of authoritarians and dictators, right, is if you're really concerned about internal threats, you do a good job of clearing the internal stage for, like, internal rebellion. You know, you kill your rivals, um, you make your military and security services focus on that problem, but then you're pretty weak when it comes to external invaders, yeah. you know, yeah, and, and, then, that, and, and that's, that's a real risk. It's a trade-off, you know? There's that amazing scene where, right, it's like... In, I think, Act 4, where he's getting the announcement of all the different rebellions that are springing up. And it's clear that he's hemmed in on all sides. And we have to assume that his behavior is what has caused that, right? It's not just... And actually, I did want to talk about this. Because it's interesting. Like, it's obvious that Richard is a villain. But I'm not sure that any of the other characters... Right? Like, I don't think that we're supposed to view Rivers or Grey or, you know, or Hastings... Well, maybe Hastings is a different thing. But these these people that he's scheming against, I'm not convinced that they're really good. No. You know? No. It's more like they're at a zero. You know, they're not a, they're not a five, right? They're not... In the sense, like, if we're looking at a negative five to five scale here, right? Like, right. Richard's negative five. He's clearly evil. But it's not like the people that he's scheming against are good. No, no. I mean, if anything, I think the state of the court is more a commentary on the decadence that has come after this tremendous bloodletting and civil war, right? You know, it's like it's not as if Edward the Fourth is an effective king by any mm-hmm. means, right? I mean, he's literally on his sickbed the entire time that we see him in the play, and it takes just like a uh, mild shock to push him over the edge. There's continued faction. There's a lack of seriousness about what is supposed to be happening in the court, which is kind of why Richard is, I think, to some degree able to succeed in a lot of ways. So, you know, it's not merely that the other characters are not good or just like neutral to like, you know, maybe depending on who you're talking about, maybe they're slightly slightly better than zero or maybe slightly worse than zero. It's also that they're not terribly uh, competent or serious people for the most part, I would say, yeah. um, which is kind of an interesting commentary as well. I mean, and that's why Richard is able to insert himself 
into all of this and is able to do some like preposterous preposterous schemes. I didn't go over this in the plot summary, but the whole way that he gets his brother Clarence dispatched is he learns that the king, King Edward, has had a dream. And in the dream, Edward has learned that the man who will depose him uh, has the letter G in his name. And Clarence's name is George. However, really, it's Gloucester, which is Richard uh, III's title before he becomes king. The Gloucester is the G that's relevant, but yet Richard is able to like implant this idea that it's like, well, it's your brother George, you know, George, uh, Duke of Clarence, that's going to overthrow you. There's just some, there's just a palpable almost absurdity to mm-hmm. the ways in which Richard is able to get people to act against their own interests and sort of embark on these crazy, crazy remedies without really doing any due diligence whatsoever. Anyway, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm fascinated by Richard as a character, but it, it's also, again, like there are very few people that burn as brightly on the stage as he does in this one. And I think that's um, very much intentional. Yeah. I, you know, this will lead into the, the, our next topic, Will, but what you're saying about King Edward and, and Clarence, I think it's worth noting as well that some of the success that he has and we'll also talk about his like successful management of his message and like how he is able to get people to do things. But right, it's worth noting as well that he takes he's definitely taking advantage of the history of what has come before, right? Mm. In that if you'll remember, like Clarence betrays Edward in one of the past plays and then comes back over to their side, right? Or, you know, with the factional infighting at court, he's throughout, he is trying to exploit these class divisions about the Woodvilles and the Queen's family being upjumped commoners. And, you know, and he's sort of playing on Buckingham's class snobbery about that. So he's, I do think that it's it's more complex or more understandable than just that it, that he's then that he's getting people to believe absurdities. He's, pl- I think he's more playing on existing concerns and mm. prejudices. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's probably a better way of putting it, actually, because it's not it's not without cleverness, right? If anything, Richard is quite clever in using past history to his advantage and the blind spots of the people that he knows and are close to him. So yeah, that's that's very that's very fair. On this subject, I wanted to and, and dealing with the past, I wanted to talk about regret in this play, mm. and and I started thinking about it, it particularly in reading Clarence's long soliloquy in Act 1, Scene 4, when basically before the murderers come to kill him, and he's talking to his jailer in the tower. And I I think this is really one of the most remarkable passages in the Mm. entire play, which I'm going to read. So this is basically Clarence is is talking to Breakenberry. Breakenberry is his jailer, and he's relating this dream that he has had, uh, basically relating to his own frailty as a person, and it's foreshadowing his death. Clarence says... He thought that I had broken from the tower and was embarked to cross to Burgundy. And in my company, my brother Gloucester, who from my cabin tempted me to walk upon the hatches. Thence we looked towards England and sighted up a thousand fearful times during the wars of York and Lancaster that had befallen us. As we paced along upon the giddy footing of the hatches, I thought that Gloucester stumbled and in falling struck me. I thought to stay him 
overboard into the tumbling billows of the main. I thought I saw a thousand fearful wrecks, ten thousand men that fishes gnawed upon. Wages of gold, great anchors, heaps of pearl, inestimable stones, unvalued jewels, all scattered at the bottom of the sea. My dream was lengthened after life. Oh, then began the tempest to my soul. I crossed, methought, the melancholy flood with that grim ferryman that poets write of into the kingdom of perpetual night. The first that there did greet my stranger soul was my great father-in-law, renowned Warwick, who cried aloud, What scourge for perjury can this dark monarchy afford? False Clarence! Then came wandering by a shadow like an angel with bright hair dabbled with blood. And he shrieked out aloud, Clarence is come! False, fleeting, perjured Clarence! Has stabbed me in the field by Tewkesbury! Seize on him, furies! Take him to your torments! No marvel, my lord, that it frighted you. Oh, Brackenbury, I have done those things which now bear evidence against my soul. For Edward's sake. And see how he requites me. And then later on, when Richard comes and delivers the news to Edward IV and basically the whole court that Clarence has been killed, Edward IV then has this long monologue, you know, which starts with this line, have a tongue to do my brother's death and shall the same give pardon to a slave. And, and basically gives this whole monologue talking about how the obligations of blood should have kept him from, from killing Clarence and that he did it anyway. Because, you know, I think it's important to remember, though, though it is... Richard's plot that results in Clarence's death, it is by virtue of getting an order from Edward mm. to do so, right? Yes. So I feel like, anyway, I'm sorry, this has been a very long lead into this topic, but I feel like what we're seeing is, it, it feels like where in the previous plays we've seen this group of people who are out for power and who are adventuring, and as, you know, as Clarence puts it, you know, that they've... <laughs> They've sighted up a thousand fearful times during the wars of York and Lancaster that had befallen us, right? They're sort of adventuring. And then in this in this play, they're older men looking back with regret on what they have done, even though it's brought them the thing that they wanted, and they're not happy with what it with, with basically the cost like the moral debt that they've incurred. Yeah, I yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the other speech that sort of jumps out a little bit in this regard is Richard after he meets the ghosts of all of his victims. And I think that it's an interesting juxtaposition too, because I'll just read a couple lines, not not the whole speech, but O coward conscience, how dost thou afflict me? The light burns blue. It is now dead midnight. Cold, fearful drops stand on my trembling flesh. What do I fear? Myself? There's none else by. Richard loves Richard. That is, I and I. Is there a murderer here? No. Yes, I am. Then fly. What from myself? Great reason why, lest I revenge. What, myself upon myself? Alack, I love myself. Wherefore? For any good that I myself have done unto myself? Oh no, alas, I rather hate myself for hateful deeds committed by myself. I am a villain. Yet I lie. I am not. Fool of thyself, speak well. Fool, do not flatter. My conscience hath a, a thousand several tongues, and every tongue brings in a several tale. And every tale condemns me for a villain. 
Perjury, perjury in the highest degree. Murder, stern murder in the direst degree. All several sins, all used in each degree, thronged to the bar, crying all guilty, guilty. I shall despair. There is no creature loves me, and if I die, no soul will pity me. And wherefore should they, since that I myself find in myself no pity to myself? Methought the souls of all that I had murdered come to my tent, and every one did threat tomorrow's vengeance on the head of Richard. There's an interesting element there of uh, throughout the play, the concept of conscience is talked about by different people, including the murderers yeah, of yeah, Clarence. I had, I had that. I was just thinking about that as well. And, and in many respects, right, it's actually conscience is juxtaposed to courage throughout the play. One of the murderers of Clarence actually refuses to go through with the deed and gets harangued by the other murderer for cowardice. And at other points, uh, I believe Richard and some of the other characters see an unwillingness to act as lacking the courage of your convictions and conscience actually prevents you from doing what needs to be done. So there's this there's this fascinating juxtaposition there, and it's almost courage of a young man's virtue. And I think in the prior three plays of the Tetralogy, the Henry VI plays, I think you see a lot more almost callous bloodletting and sort of impulsive action, but it's all justified under the, the aegis of courage in a way, and sort of taking action manfully to get what's yours, essentially, in the world. And I think it's interesting now that as older men and as men that are about to face their deaths, they're sort of realizing that a lot of their um, behavior has brought them to this point, and that conscience, uh, it's, it's interesting because I think conscience is, is something more than cowardice in the play. And I think, you know, there's no question that Richard is portrayed, as you said, as, as an evil person. And he's obviously wrestling with his own understanding of his conscience. But I thought it's fascinating to see a character who's so callous finally face a reckoning and be unable to fully resolve. Um, well, he, and I think this is where you see the fundamental divide between Richard and the rest. And like, to be clear, Clarence is not a good guy, right? Yeah. Edward IV is not a good guy. Like, these are not noble characters. You know, we've lived with them for several plays. Clarence has betrayed multiple people. You know, he betrayed his brother and Richard to go serve Warwick and the Lancastrians, then betrayed them to go back over to Edward and Richard. Edward has killed many people in his pursuit of power. So it's not like these are noble, virtuous people. And yet there is still a fundamental line between them who are like looking back on their lives and reflecting on their, not even their mistakes, but their their evil deeds and coming to terms with them versus Richard, who's just doubling down on, you know, on his commitment to, to villainy. And, uh, and even in, in that term, even in that monologue at the end, right, he's still incredibly conflicted <laughs> despite being confronted by the ghosts of all of the people that he's killed in this play. You know, he goes back and forth and he's like, well, you know, I'm a villain, but I'm also not a villain. You know, I, I, did, I did wrong, but did I really do wrong? It's sort of left unresolved, and the ambivalence is laid there, where even he can't really quite bring himself to truly condemn, you know, his, his villainy in a forthright yeah, well, way. And I, I think Richard, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit 
I think more about this when we get to the end. But as an addendum to what we were talking about with his worldview, I think Richard is fundamentally defined by this belief that domination over others is the only thing worth pursuing, right? Mm -hmm. And I think you even see that in first in the scene with Anne, then later on when he's talking to Elizabeth about wooing her daughter. Everything needs to be filtered through this idea of domination, Mm-hmm. And I think when that's at the foundation of his worldview, it's impossible for him to feel regret if it's if it's delivered him that yeah that gain. Does that make sense? Yes. No. That 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 absolutely does. All right. Moving on. I think one thing that contributes to Richard's success is unlike the other characters in the play, like Richard has, a, I think, a precocious understanding of the need to control the message. Mm-hmm. Right, you see it in that scene where he's trying to get the people of London to, to to declare him king or to ask him to become king, and he sends out, I think it's Buckingham, to rally the crowd, and then they come to see him, and he appears in the window, and he's got two bishops, and he's you know, and he's making it look like he's at prayer, and he, like he's a holy man. Then later on, he's he's talking about having these two preachers preach messages in support of him. He sort of seems to understand propaganda in a way that I don't think we've seen before at all. What do you think? Yeah, I know. I think I think that's right. I mean, you could make maybe the argument with some of the stuff about Joan of Arc that there's a certain degree of wanting to defame, but then Joan of Arc is literally portrayed conjuring demons. So yeah, I do think that this is like this is a true master of propaganda and sowing division, divide and conquer, you know, within his own country in order to be able to ascend to power. And also recognizing that there are different audiences that he's trying to reach with each of these messages, right? Whether it's dividing the people against the corrupt nobility, dividing his own family and choosing which messages to broadcast to which audiences. I think that's it's, he's pretty sophisticated. Right, and being successful also in maintaining the fiction of what he's doing versus what other people are doing. He, he's consistently able yes. to make people believe that, that the, sort of the, the things that he's doing behind the scenes are being done by other people and that he is, you know, that right. he is virtuous and other people are the ones who are bringing down the country. Yeah, he's, he's quite good at this throughout. And I think it, it's a lot more sort of politically sophisticated, yeah, than anything that we've seen before in these plays. There's definitely a bit of like, like I, I am kind of fascinated now by this notion of Richard as like an authoritarian rising up and mm-hmm. seizing control of government. Because you can see a lot of qualities, whether it's like a Saddam Hussein or an Adolf Hitler, not to go too anachronistically to the great mass murderers of our past century, but like I think you can see a real talent for doing this, and I think that's kind of a prerequisite for somebody that's seeking power in these incredibly violent days where the country's been divided and you know there's potentially great gain for somebody who's willing to be ruthless but but it's not all ruthlessness in terms of just killing your way to the top directly and i think that's richard's talent in a way is he goes from maybe not having the most power of anybody in the play uh, i mean there are others that are weaker than him of course but you know, he's like third in, third in line among his brothers to the throne. You know, he's like the youngest, I believe he's the youngest brother. And then obviously he's got the children of Edward in the way. He has to generate this idea of like a legitimate yeah. claim. 
And he does so, you know, indirectly by insinuation and by misdirection. And in that sense, it's, it's rather, it's rather brilliant. Now, of course, there's a million ways it can fall apart. And I think, you know, eventually people are sort of wise to what's been happening. Well, in it's a way, you know, it's, it's uh, like right. a lot of these things. You can't. I feel like throughout the play, we do get, you know, we get people talking about how Richard is working against them or how he's their enemy, right? Like all the Woodvilles know that Richard is not their friend, and yet he he still manages to maintain enough communication and enough decorum and enough enough of an image of being a part of the solution and not part of the problem that he's not outright condemned. Yeah. I mean, I think another part of this, right, is within the power structure of England, within the court, there are so many factions. I mean, you have like these different power centers, right? You have the Woodvilles, you have people like Buckingham, you've got the two princes. So there's plenty of different factions that exist. And then obviously there's Richmond in Brittany, right, poised to invade at any time. So there's plenty of opportunity for people to rationalize what Richard is doing, or at least recognize that maybe it can be controlled or channeled, or maybe he's not quite as powerful, you know, as he seems. They can maybe work with him. So there's enough space for people to deceive themselves in various ways. But yeah, I I think I find that that idea of, you know, many people recognizing that Richard's like not a great guy that he um, has been up to some really shady stuff even over the course of the play. Like there's Mm -hmm. a limited shelf life to all of his plots, right? Most of them get found out or revealed one way or the other, which is often like the way that these types of things go. It's like, it's very difficult to pull off disinformation or assassination or covert action to use modern parlance and have it stay hidden, right? It's a lot easier for the truth to eventually out but after the plot has mm-hmm. succeeded in various ways. And so despite that, Richard is able to pit people against one another when he needs them to be against one another. He's able to remove people when he needs them removed without having it traced back to him. And then when he gets to a certain point, it's not so much that he's sloppy, though you could argue that that's the case. He, he stops really caring about disguising I'm, what I'm he's doing. You you know? I was thinking of it, and I had not thought of it while I was reading the play, but while, you, while you've been talking, I've been thinking about it, right? That it does feel like once he becomes king, stuff that, in, you know, that previously he had, how do we put it? He basically brings everything out into the open and just seems to t- adopt this. He adopts a policy of direct force rather than manipulation. I don't think there's a better example of that than his, you know, how he tries to keep Stanley loyal, which is not by courting Stanley or by, you know, saying Buckingham's a traitor. Now you can be the Earl of Hereford or something, but by taking his son hostage. He goes from a, from an approach of, and it it happens almost as soon as he becomes king. Now that I think about it, where he suddenly stops Mm. worrying about message control and just basically takes the, what's, what's the term? The iron fist and the velvet glove. He just takes the velvet glove off. Yes. Yes. Well, and I think this is, um, so if you actually read, you know, Machiavelli in The Prince, he says, it is best of all to be feared and loved. But to paraphrase here, he says, but if you have to choose between the two, it's better to be feared than loved. But he also qualifies that and essentially says, but fe- too much fear in and of itself is ultimately corrosive to the rule of the prince. So you have to keep these dual forces in mind and inspiring fear can kick you pretty far. But you can risk going to excess there and ultimately undermining 
you know, your own political power. And I think that's definitely what he falls prey to throughout. I mean, Richard, very little emphasis on being loved, except perhaps at the beginning, right, where he's trying to present himself as this pious individual who has legitimate connection and right to be king, that he's got the support of the people, et cetera, et cetera. He loses all of that, as you say. So it's it's interesting. He goes, you know, to completely ruling by fear, which is probably not what he needs. And, you know, I think even when you get to his, like, final speech to rally the troops, it's nowhere near as inspiring yeah. as other yeah. leaders that we've seen. And when we get to Henry V, I think we'll see the complete contrast of somebody who's actually able to be movingly eloquent. I wonder, um, um, you know, because there is something to this thing that of, of his transformation when he becomes king. And I wonder, and if, this is purely speculation, I don't know that there's anything in the play that will speak to it, but... He's been aiming at this thing really from as far back as halfway through Henry VI, part three, right? He's been thinking about becoming king. And so I wonder if there's an element of, like, he attains what he's been looking for and, you know, no longer, you know, now he has to hold power rather than working towards getting power. And I wonder if that impacts the calculus of, you know, how he's behaving, right? Like, when he's achieved the goal, and I think this is a, a consistent problem, you know, I think in, in human life in general, right? Like you have a goal, you achieve the goal, and then like what comes after? Right. So Yeah. So we've gone through this play pretty thoroughly. This is sort of capping the first of Shakespeare's tetralogies, and it's been quite a journey, especially for the listeners that have bared with us for the Henry the Sixth plays and are now on Richard the Third. So some thoughts on the conclusion and where we are from here, and and we maybe talk mm-hmm. through some of the through lines uh, of what we've seen in all four of these plays. So each of these plays has had their own story, right? Their own contained arc that they're about. But I feel like it's interesting having that, like, and I, I was familiar with, with Richard III. I hadn't read it, but I'd seen mm-hmm. both relatively famous film adaptations and, of course, knew the, you know, the very famous opening speech. I've seen it in performance a few times. So I was, like, I was familiar with Richard III as a play. I had never read or really knew that much about any of the Henry VI plays. And I have to say, like, I think Richard III is renowned as, like, one of the great villains of Shakespeare. And, and I think that's true. I mean, he is a great character and he is a great villain. But then looking back over the four plays in their totality, I feel like Richard is really just one part of a much larger story of regime breakdown and ultimately regime change. Um, yes. And, and I feel like his character, and I, I want to talk more about this, is really kind of an outgrowth of that milieu. I mean, obviously, like, he's the most extreme, but I think Richard needs to be understood within the context of this cycle of violence that begins with the early and untimely death of Henry V. Yes, I think that that is definitely, definitely the case. And there's a real richness to reading the Henry VI plays prior to reading Richard III in that context. But I think it's interesting because you have that element of it, but you also have the fact that, I mean, and it's true earlier in the Henry VI plays with Richard. Richard is a character, as I said earlier, that leaps off the page throughout. 
And I think it's remarkable to see Shakespeare's growth as an artist over the course of these plays being capped by Richard III. And it's kind of amazing because there's continuity and sort of the theme and the, the basic plot of each of the plays and they culminate fittingly with Richard. And, I, you know, if anything, Richard III is sort of an intensification of all the plays that we've seen previously, like a lot of similar events but with greater complexity, greater depth, and greater pathos, and greater bloodletting in some ways too, you know, more personal violence. Anyway, all of which is to say, it's fascinating because you can appreciate Richard III as the natural culmination of the tetralogy, but you can also see it as a leap ahead in Shakespeare's craft as an artist. And so it's kind of neat to read them as a whole and get to see that. Yeah, the growth over the course of the four plays. So, Will, I mean, right, like, there, there's, this sort of has a personality arc to it. And, and we were just talking about the, the context of Richard's characters growing out of these wars. But I, f- I feel like there is a national project in here as well. And mm. I think it's very clear, and it will become even more clear as we get through more history plays. Like, Shakespeare's obviously interested in English history and in the past and how they've arrived at this point. And, like, of course, we know that to some degree this is Tudor propaganda well, I guess, so I guess that's my first question is, do you think that that Shakespeare believes this propaganda? And two, what do you think he's trying to say about England in this moment in time as emerging from the chaos of the Wars of the Roses and leading into Henry VII? Yeah, so I think basically my reading of it is the way in which he tells this story, the intention of it is Tudor propaganda. I mean, right, the War of the Roses, the famous saying goes... The War of the Roses was the House of York versus the House of Lancaster and the House of Tudor ultimately won. And I think that there's a moral to this story that Shakespeare is trying to tell, which is like he's living in an era of an ascendant England, but a still vulnerable England in many respects. And I think he's trying to tell this story of keeping the nation together and not falling apart as had happened several generations previous. So I think there's that element of it, which both has a propaganda value, but I get the sense he genuinely believes, right? But, you know, he's trying to portray what happens when you know, you lack that kind of national unity and sense of purpose and dedicated uh, virtuous rulers to a certain degree. The play is also incredibly cynical about politics as well. And actually, in that sense, I think it's quite subversive. I mean, I, you know, I'm obviously neither of us are Shakespeare scholars, and I I don't want to import anachronistic concepts. But I think his cynicism about politics, and I think to some degree, cynicism about this hereditary bloodline based system, like not so much that he's a a small R Republican or anything, but more just he sees the flaws of these systems where things are based on incredibly tenuous lineages and where people behave quite selfishly and cynically in the pursuit of their own interests. And Richard is the apotheosis of that. But you see plenty of it throughout the other parts of the tetralogy. So in that sense, it's like it's a pretty subversive play yeah. or series of we've, plays as well. Yeah, we and we've talked, I think, in I think it was in the, the Henry VI Part Two episode, we talked about the, the pessimism that Shakespeare seems to take to this story. And it does... It, it, it does feel to me like the, like, regardless of where things start out, and, and like, obviously, like, when we open Henry VI Part One, we have the death of Henry V, and then we immediately leap into Henry VI as a young king, unable to maintain 
order and rule. And that immediately fosters this den of vipers of the nobility who are plotting and all seeking their own advantage. And that leads into this this cycle of Mm -hmm. downfall. And it seems like the portrayal is, regardless of how things were at the outset, however great things were under Henry V, this process and like that sort of beginning that engendered this poisonous atmosphere had to lead naturally to this point. And the only way for it to go back to a better situation is for Richmond to come in and sweep away the old order. Right. And like, I don't know that that's a positive message, right? There's no... There's no message here of the system can be reformed, I don't think. Yeah, it seems yeah, like, yeah. It seems like rather it is the system is sclerotic and needs to die so that the new can be born. There's definitely a cycle of decay and regeneration, right? And I think there's an interesting question there, too, of whether virtuous leadership and great national leadership can really be sustained over time, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it, we'll get to Henry V later, who is portrayed in another in the other tetralogy as the leader who comes into his own and is ultimately a great national leader but i mean in this tetralogy you see how greatness or virtue or national vision in one person is not enough to secure the realm and to ensure that good government provides for the greatness of the nation or the kingdom rather so there's kind of an interesting element there right of like is it even possible to sustain a series of good kings and maybe maybe it is you know certainly but i think that somebody like shakespeare writing this history and also looking back to imperial rome and republican rome which would have been the common touch point the idea of decay and the, ri- the rise and fall dynamic, that's got to weigh pretty heavily on the mind of somebody like Shakespeare writing this stuff. And I think, you know, and, and intellectuals in general, I would imagine at the time. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing because when you're trying to write amid a royal regime that is dedicated to its own idea of being endowed by God with authority and being perpetually good and legitimate. It's, it's very interesting to have this cross-current that's subtly going against the idea that, that that order is necessarily destined for success, right? You're right, and it's, it's interesting to think about the facts of Shakespeare's time, right? Like, Shakespeare is writing in the period of—I mean, Elizabeth has already been queen for a long time when he's writing, right? right? And, he's, and he's writing in this period of great stability, and, like, there's this cultural flower, flowering that comes out of that. But it's worth— Noting, I think, that, you know, though this play cycle ends with Henry VII and that's sort of portrayed as the renewal mm-hmm. of England, Elizabeth's reign and, like, this flowering that happens in Elizabeth's reign and this prosperity in which Shakespeare is writing was also by no means certain. England basically was living in this cycle of uncertainty and violence from... Basically, from the moment Prince Arthur died, Henry VIII became the heir, and Henry VIII has to marry Catherine of Aragon. They can't have a child. Henry VIII, obviously, is extremely aware of the dangers of a royal minority or of not having Mm -hmm. a clear succession. That sort of leads directly into the break with Rome, into Edward VI dying young, into the Marian persecutions and, Mm -hmm. you know, the many, many burnings at the stake of Queen Mary's reign. Mm -hmm. Only after 
that cycle ends and Elizabeth comes to the throne and is able to consolidate power as basically an absolute yeah, monarch. Yeah. Is this is this stability attained? And and even then, right? right, you have the Spanish Armada and, you know, a near invasion on a couple of occasions from continental powers early in her relatively early in her reign. So there's a lot of um that 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 really does dog the whole question of stability and she's able to eventually assert that authority but i imagine it's got to hang maybe all the more heavy on your head as a citizen of england or person in england wondering yeah this has been sort of a golden age but what comes after especially that knowing that elizabeth is childless right so there's a certain subtext that's got to be pretty powerful there and i and i think you you know that that sort of regret of these other characters that we were talking about earlier goes a little bit to that sense of decay that you were talking mm. about, right? That like Edward and Clarence are looking back and, you know, and they're living in the world that they've made, but they've made it in a bad way. And it's and, and that fact that is now haunting right. haunting them. Right. And that, that causes them, you know, that causes the regime to need to fall in order to be renewed. Right, exactly. I, I think, you know, Will, I, I think about what you were saying about the play being subversive, and I think you're right. And I and I think it's, but I think it's worth observing that I think Shakespeare's doing something that, that is sort of the truest sign of, or, or one of the one of the most fundamental aspects of the greatest art that we have, which is that his his portrayal of this is extremely descriptive, mm-hmm. but it's not really prescriptive. Yes. You know, it's like he's very critical of the problems of these structures and of what he's portraying, mm-hmm. but he's not hes not trying to say, like, he's describing a problem in, like, a truthful way without saying, here's the answer. I have yes, answer yes. He right. doesn't, yeah, I think he... I think you can you can glean aspects of authorial intent and like what he actually wants you to come away with here, but he does it by showing rather than telling. And even in the showing, there is ambiguity and nuance here. It's not as if he doesn't believe that there, you know, there are noble, there are more noble figures, particularly earlier in the tetralogy, right? Like there are good leaders as well as bad leaders. So it's not as if well, he's yeah, discounting this is virtue. Part of what's so tragic about this whole cycle is, you know, the cycle in its entirety, and this play in particular, is that sense that the circumstance and the situation and these the poisonous situation that has its origin in in that situation, the beginning of Henry VI, part one, part of the result of that is the disappearance of men of character mm-hmm. and men of virtue who, who, who are fit to lead. Right. And, yeah. and and I think Richard, you know, Richard is the fullest embodiment of that in that, you know, as we've talked about, like Richard takes this way of interacting with the world and this approach to power as, you know, and domination as the ultimate good takes it to the extreme. And that's very dark. Right. That's a very dark yeah. place to end up. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's why he ultimately needs to die. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, since uh, this is a pretty heavy play, why don't we talk a little bit about the legacy of it and the different ways people have portrayed it via film? Sort of talk about the legacy yeah, of Richard so III. This, uh, unusually, there are, there are two... I mean, Hamlet obviously has several very famous film adaptations, but I, I, there aren't that many Shakespeare plays that have, I think several great films and this is one of them so there's the there's the Laurence Olivier film from I think it's 1955 mm-hmm. hang on that let me sounds... double check this because I, I had yeah 1955 which also so first of all notable it's Laurence Olivier is Richard it's got an amazing cast Laurence Olivier is Richard 
Ralph Richardson plays, I believe, Buckingham. John Gilgood plays Clarence. And and Cedric Hardwick, who's, an, who's another knight, plays King Edward. So it's this great assemblage of Shakespearean actors of that era. Mm. And it was, interestingly, it was broadcast on, I think, on NBC in shortly after its premiere. And according to the, to the BFI, I'm just going to read this from that most reliable of sources, <laughs> Wikipedia. Uh, the British Film Institute suggests Olivier's Richard III may have done more to popularize Shakespeare than any other piece of work. According to the BFI, the 25 to 40 million viewers during its airing on U.S. television, in quotes, would about numbered the sum of the play's theatrical audiences over the 358 years since its first performance, end quote. And, and I think that's, that's consistent with, with Olivier's overall influence. Right. Um, he was the, the Kenneth Branagh of that era, right? And I think Kenneth Branagh carried that torch forward and sort of yeah. reintroducing Shakespeare to new audiences. But this movie is, uh, I mean, the, the Olivier uh, Richard III is very theatrical. You know, I watched it a couple mm. weeks ago. You know, it's sort of all, it's very clear that it's all in sound stages. It's like very vivid technicolor photography. And it's, it's, not, it's not trying to be cinematic in the sense of like big sets very realistic. It's like it's leaning into the theatricality of it, right. and it really works in the film. And then more recently, I think in '93, there was the Ian McKellen. '95, uh, yes, '95. Yep. Okay. Uh, you you've also seen this one, right? Yes, I, I actually love this movie. Um, it's oh. a very good film, and it reimagines. I mean, you were talking about the connection of Richard III to totalitarianism and authoritarian regimes. I mean, it directly reimagines yes. Richard III as a proto-Nazi, right? Yeah. And like um, a very much an interwar period, the 1930s feeling where there's been a triumph in war. Everybody's wearing their fascist style uniforms. There's big rallies with red flags and sort of black and red iconography. And basically, Richard is sort of a, portrayed as a fascist, you know, or proto-fascist in the way he deposes everybody. And it's also an all-star cast. I mean, you have Ian McKellen, famously as Richard III, but also Annette Benning, uh, Jim Broadbent, Robert Downey Jr., Kirsten Stock Thomas, uh, Maggie Smith, and Dominic West. So you have, like, actually a great latter-day cast. One thing I love about this movie, Will, we touched on the uh, the Woodvilles a little bit, but we didn't get into the what amounts to the this social class conflict and yes. snobbery in the play. And I think the, the Ian McKellen film has a really nice way of dealing with that, which is that it makes the, you know, basically makes the Woodvilles all Americans. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's and right. They're like, they're like the nouveau riche Americans who have come over to marry into the upper class, but they're like clearly not really serious people or anything or of yeah. the aristocracy uh, in the same uh, sense. And it's a really, it's, it's also like a really nice reappropriation of that early 20th century move of rich Americans coming back to England to refresh the upper classes and like being looked down on, but also we're not going to say no to their money. Yeah, yeah, you know exactly, I mean? exactly, exactly. So yeah, it's, that's a great film. Ranking the play will, I, I mean, I think this has to be you know, for, for all that, uh, as I said at the beginning, that I didn't enjoy the process of reading it as much as some of the other Henry VI plays, I don't think there's any question that this is the best play of the ones we've read so far. Yeah, it's definitely the greatest of the plays. I think ranking it, ranking them becomes hard because this one so overshadows the rest. 
And, you know, conversely, when you're reading some of the ones you haven't come across, I still have a soft spot for Henry VI Part Two, for instance, right? You know, so I, I guess I would put Richard at the top simply because of Stan's head and shoulders above the rest. And then I would say, for me, the next best, if not of the classically great plays, would be Henry VI Part Two yeah. of what we've read. Uh, I'll, I'll put it this way. If you were to ask me which of these plays did I most enjoy... Henry's mm-hmm. is part two, for sure. Right, is, right. That said, if you were to ask me, like, which of these plays is the greatest or the most significant or the most interesting or says the most about the most, is definitely Richard III. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Okay, Will, before we sign off, anything you've been reading that you uh, oh, want to share with us? So so much uh, of late. I've been reading a lot about the the Persian Gulf War as part of my my research work which has been fascinating. And one of the books that I read is actually uh, just very recently released. It's called The Great Rift. And it's by Jim Mann, who's a journalist, longtime journalist for the Washington Post. And it's about the story of Colin Powell and uh, Dick Cheney's friendship and rivalry and what their division tells us about American foreign policy and history. And you want to talk about a Shakespearean tragedy in many ways, uh, both for the two men and in many respects for the country. That is a book that is uh, very much worth reading, even if you're not obsessed with foreign policy and national security matters. So highly recommended, The Great Rift by James Mann. And that's our show. Next time on Bard Flies, on analysis of the Shakespeare play you're least likely to have heard of with Edward III. Thanks, as always, for tuning into Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.